Hello. Yay, how are you? <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> um, it's very good to see you. Welcome to Encounters with Music. It is lovely to see all your smiling faces and thank you so much for being here. Um, presented by the ACO and the Wheeler Centre. I'm Fenella Kernabone and I'm really happy to be uh, hosting these series of four talks and I'm particularly excited about tonight's event. But before I introduce our speaker, whom you might have heard of, I'm, I'm not sure, <laughs> maybe, um, I would like to acknowledge that we are on Gadigal land and I would like to pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. This is Gadigal land of the Eora Nation and I, again I pay my respects but also to wherever you might happen to join us from today, I pay respects to Elders past and present um, in the countries where you happen to live and acknowledge that this land has never been ceded and it's such a privilege to be here on this land at um, this incredible venue at the Australian Chamber Orchestra and what a delight it is to be here tonight. So, as I said, there are four talks in this series. This is the very first one and so that I feel nice and comfortable before we introduce our guest and I sit down, I thought maybe we could give a big round of applause for all of you for joining us tonight. It's good. Excellent. So, this evening, ladies and gentlemen, Lee Sales is our speaker. We're going to be hearing her story and we're going to be hearing about the role of music in her life and how music intersects with her life. Very recently, of course, she was the anchor of ABC TV's 7.30. She's a former US correspondent. She's written four books. She hosts a ridiculously popular podcast with Annabelle Crabb. She does quite a lot. And I think the most important thing is that she can interview and she can sing and play the piano at the same time. <laughs> She is a Renaissance woman. Would you please welcome Lee Sales? Hello. Hello. Hi, Lee. Hi. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the audience. Thank you very much for coming. I said at the back, who, who wants to come to hear me bang on about organ lessons when I was 10? <laughs> Me, I want to know about it. Um, well, exactly. We're going to talk about organ lessons when you were 10. We're going to think about the music that you love. In fact, you've got six pieces of music that we're going to play as well. But I'm just going to chuck something at you just to kick off before we go and talk about your childhood. But um, what was the last piece of music that you listened to that was significant to you? And it could be genre, it could be a track, it could be anything, up to you. Oh, that's a really good question. Um, well, thank God it's the first one. Probably. <laughs> People, has anyone ever noticed as well? Interviewees always go, "That's a really good question," when they don't know how to it's answer it, and so they just use it to buy, um. buy a bit of time. <laughs> yeah. Well, I I guess it's significant because I'm reading a book at the moment called "Play It Again: An Amateur Takes on the Impossible" by Alan Rusbridger, who used to be the editor of the Guardian, and he. Uh, had this year, which was one of the busiest years ever when he was editing The Guardian when the WikiLeaks story broke. And he's also a very um, keen amateur pianist and he was learning um, a very complicated Chopin piece. And so, because he's talking about it, the book's it's kind of written in great depth where he'll be talking about, oh, I went to see my teacher and he's talking about, should I do the octave, you know, with a one and a three or a one and a four or whatever. So it's very kind of technical in that sense. And so I went and listened to the piece of music and then I'm feeling like I probably need to download it on music notes to actually have a look at what he's talking about. He, desc right. he describes certain passages like squashed flies on the page and stuff <laughs> like that. So um, I just, I, I mean, I, I've seen enough Chopin sheet music that I know exactly what he's talking about there, but I just want to go and have a look at it. So that's probably that. There's nothing better, I reckon, than reading a book, if it's, say, a musician's biography or a, a book like this, where you're actually 
listening to the music at the same time as they're talking about it, it really brings it to life. Mm. You've got eclectic music taste. The other day I spoke to you and you said you'd been listening to Chris Christopherson. So I did. If you've I, gone I, highbrow to somewhere else. Where are we going? I, um, I was listening to the Doobie Brothers today. Um, yeah, I, I, <laughs> Why my, didn't you go with that one just then? <laughs> my, my musical taste is um, actually kind of like my reading taste, which is... I don't have any snobbery about it, I, and I think that all music and all literature is a gateway to other more advanced, for, you know, forms of the art. So, you know, I remember when I was a kid, for example, I don't know if anyone re will remember, um, I think it was KTEL was the brand of the albums, um, Hooked on Classics, and oh, they had awesome. Hooked on Swing, Hooked on Jazz, Hooked on whatever. Hooked on Bach, Walter Carlos, Wendy Carlos, beautiful, yeah. So um, Hooked on Classics, I remember we had the cassette. In fact, I think we had like a six-pack of all the different hooked-ons that you could have. <laughs> hooked on romance, hooked on whatever. And that's actually um, not a bad entree into classical music because, of course, it's all of the like most famous themes of bits and pieces of music. And so you just get a sense of, oh, I like that one. And th yep. that's then pushes you into having a look at something else. So I will as happily listen to Willie Nelson as I will listen to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. I love it. I think that's fantastic. Um, well, we're here to talk about music. We're, we're going to go sort of a little bit through your life. It's like a, this is your life, but with music as well. So we'll talk about journalism and interviewing and US correspondence work and uh, the whole thing. But can we go back to Little Lee, little, little one, under 10, I suspect. Um, and you had a music teacher um, uh, that we're going to talk about as well. But when did you realise that music was going to be such an important part of your life? Well, I was always interested in just, you know, playing musical toys and, um, you know, singing around the house and stuff. And I remember when I was in grade one or two, the music teacher said to mum, oh, your daughter's got a good ear. You should think about letting her learn music. And I was always begging, begging, begging to have music lessons. And, you know, music lessons are not cheap. Um, and nor is buying an instrument. And our family didn't have a huge amount of money. And so, um, you know, that, it, that and, and it wasn't a musical family. So that wasn't kind of... Um, on the radar and then I just kept begging and begging begging and then when I was 10 um, mum said yes and so we bought we they had a friend whose daughter actually was learning the organ around the corner from this woman called Leanne and so mum said well you can ride your bike around to go to Leanne's and we so we looked in the trading post all these old references <laughs> KTEL and the trading post and stuff looked cool, in the cool trading classics, post yeah. <laughs> we bought an organ out of the trade a two keyboard organ out of the trading post and the message was we will pay, it was $6 for half an hour, we'll pay $6 for your lesson once a week, but if you don't practice, if you don't take it seriously, then we'll be selling it and you will not be going. Um, but I was always, um, I always really loved practice. In fact, I was the opposite kind of kid. I was like, you know, hurry up, your dinner's on the table, you know, kind of kid. So and you I were, were practising. Because I was, right, I was okay. practising, yeah. So um, I started going off to lessons with Leanne when I was about 10. Mm. And you put got the ten bucks or the six bucks, put it into your bicycle, bicycle and, basket and, and with rode the music to your book and the manuscript. And I would ride around to Leanne's and wait out the front. And there was this boy I remember before me called Michael Rossi, who was much more advanced than I was. Um, and Leanne absolutely loved him as well. And that used to really she, she'd always go, "Oh, there's just no one who can play like Michael Rossi." <laughs> Is Michael here today? Just, <laughs> just checking. Um, that's very funny. Um, I, I love that music has been so so much a part of your life, and, and it started off with this this story when you bought this two keyboard 
is that what you call a two keyboard organ? Yeah. That's fantastic. And then and then you started doing lessons with Leanne. And, and I want to start off with our first track today because you've chosen this one to kick off. So are you guys ready? We're going to have a bit of a dance in the room. <laughs> Tell me why you've chosen Stevie Wonder. Before we hear it or do you want to hear it first? Oh, let's have a listen to it okay. first. Okay. Stevie Wonder, let's have a listen. Find your best to bring the water to your eyes. Thinking it might stop her from whipping your behind. That place will be good. Come back once more. Why did those things? You've got to be a brass player. It does. Not a piano player? Both. <laughs> Why this track? Why have you chosen this track today to um, kick off? Okay, so one of the great things about Leanne as a teacher was that she would, whatever music I was listening to at the time, she would say, oh, we can learn, you know, we can work out a version of that that suits your, you know, skill standards. So I would either work it out by ear or she, I, I would say, oh, I like this song in the top 40 and she would then write a basic manuscript version of it and then we'd do it. And so... One of the songs um, that was popular at the time, which I didn't particularly love, but it appeared in some, there was this music book series called Top of the Pops that would have piano or organ versions of whatever was um, popular. And this, one of the songs at the time, which was huge, was I Just Called Stay I Love You by Stevie Wonder. And we saw it in the book and Leanne said, oh, it just it breaks my heart that like a lot of people's only knowledge of Stevie Wonder might be this song. And that was mine, right? Because I was too young for Songs in the Key of Life, which that um, song's on. Anyway, Leanne um, lent me her double... She said, you need to take this home and listen to it. So she lent me this double album, Songs in the Key of Life by Stevie Wonder. And um, I said to Fenella on the phone, I hope I don't cry, like, all through this because I just love music so much and it makes me so emotional <laughs> because it's such a gift, right, when people do yeah, this yeah. kind of stuff for you. So um, I put it on and um, the first... Um, song on it I think is um, Love's in Need of Love Today but literally from the start of it, it I mean is, is everyone familiar with that album or some people familiar with that album it, it is 1972 uh, oh, yeah. it is just a superb album and uh, it's really musically complex but it's also just like that song it's just so hooky mm. and uh, and then that just made me love Stevie Wonder so then and because Stevie Wonder's music's heavy heavily piano based because he plays the piano and so then, of course, that was perfect because it was... Then I, of course, wanted to learn lots of Stevie Wonder songs. But they're hard because they're all... Because he's blind, it's all five flats, five sharps, because it's all then deep into the black keys, so it's easy to feel kind of where you are. Um, in fact, I was reading, actually, in this Alan Rusbridger book, which I didn't realise, that Chopin, when he was teaching students, would teach C major as the final scale on the piano because it was the hardest. And I've always thought, that's so weird because C major is, like, your first scale that you learn. But um, it's because it's all white keys, and so positioning yourself is not so easy, whereas once oh. you're playing in other keys, you've got your certain patterns that you're adapting to. So, so how did you go playing songs on all the flat keys? Oh, the well, I was horrified then when I opened it. It was like, but it's, it's in, like, D-flat major. <laughs> and so Leanne was like, yes, it is. And that was the genius of her. So she, I also hated – I didn't mind sight reading, but I hated transposition. So she, so she would say, well – you can transpose it if you want to D major or E major or whatever. So she would use all of that just as a like dangling a like little carrot out. Well, I guess if you want to do that, you're gonna have to learn how to play D major scales and <laughs> D major arpeggios and work that out. So, yourself. You, but you started off really strong, like really good foundations when it comes to to, to practicing and to playing. And Stevie Wonder is is a sort of a great illustration of that, essentially. Yeah, and and also just a great illustration of um, great teachers and how they. 
know what to do to kind of motivate you and, and, and also how to put stuff ahead of you that's like just out of your reach but achievable if you work hard enough because if you put things that are too hard then it's a demotivator or too easy is boring so you've got to just have it just at that like just always like slightly beyond your reach okay and and, and how long did she teach you for like what was that what was that oh, relationship like over time i'm still in touch with her today um so I love that. it was uh she was like my main music teacher until I didn't have lessons anymore. So from age 10 to say 21. Um, but I moved away during periods of that and she moved away. So then it would become, instead of a weekly lesson, it would become kind of a more ad hoc lesson. Um, and yeah, she, I, I did have some other music teachers, but just none that I ever got on as well with or thought were as good as her. Mm. Shall we listen to the, the second track and um, just... Do you want to introduce this one for us? It's to, 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 yeah, it's, one. Um, yeah, it's Takata and Fugue in D minor by J.S. Bach. Okay, well, let's have Bach. a listen to this one and then we can come back and talk a bit about why you've chosen this yeah. as well. So, um, okay. thanks, Yoss. Takata in D major. Minor. Minor. Oh, God. <laughs> Well, do you know what? I can still in my head like feel like where the fingers are. Really? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was just a C sharp there. <laughs> so it's like a muscle memory almost. Yeah, muscle memory. It's so bizarre because pieces, like, so stuff that I learned as a kid is deeply, deeply in the muscle memory. But if I'm practicing a piece on the piano today and I say get to a reasonable um, standard, which for me these days is hopeless, um, <laughs> and then I don't practice for five days, I might as well be going from close to scratch. It does not, it's like it doesn't stick. Whereas all the stuff that I could play as a kid, I could still sit down and possibly pick out a, a, a bit of it. You know, like I would know that the opening two notes of that piece are A and G sharp. Um, so, yeah, so that piece was... Um, I was learning from Leanne on an electronic organ and then I shifted to piano. But um, when I was about 15 or 16, I had a scholarship which allowed me to play. In Brisbane, there were only two pipe organs. One was at Brisbane Town Hall and one was at Kelvin Grove High School in their auditorium. And so I was allowed to go and play on the pipe organ. Um, and, oh, my God, it was like just... It was like if you'd, you know, driven a car and then being asked to fly, a, you know... 787. It was so <laughs> ridiculous. Like vaguely similar. There's a wheel and, and there's some wheels on the bottom, but that was about it. But it was And you have to get the key to get up to the actual chair to sit in the seat the seat, you know, like Well, it was it was it was just I, I can't remember now, but it was just all I can remember is it was just so gigantic. I mean Le Leanne had a large electric organ. She had a three keyboard double octave pedaled organ with, you know, buttons like all around in a circle. Um what was her organ called? It was a really famous brand at the time. But anyway, um, and the pipe organ, like, was – it just dwarfed that. But the thing that – my lasting memory of it is that the physicality of it, because it's like the actions are really heavy, so it's like taking a lot of physicality to do everything. But the hardest thing by far was that the sound has to travel from your hands up and then come out the pipes. And so you're out of sync. So you're playing, but what you're hearing is not what you're playing. And so, um, wow. <laughs> I remember the first, when I first sat down, I was like, 
are you fucking kidding me? That <laughs> I meant to like play this. And so, and what happened was everything, I would slow it all down because it'd be like I'd be trying to get in sync with myself. <laughs> so it was just horrendous. So the first few sessions that it, I was just like, I do, just don't want to do this anymore. It's not really fun. And then I mean, all I can recall at the time, which sounds appalling, was that you had to kind of get to a place where you weren't really listening to what you were playing. You had to kind of track, you had to trust from the practice, not on the pipe organ, that it was kind of right. And then you just kind of worked out the kinks when you got on the pipe organ. But it was, I never, I don't think I ever really felt like I was in control of that instrument. It felt like it was driving me, like it was just so vast. <laughs> So, uh, it sounds like a really strange equation, but is there something about that where you're not so much in control but you're at the helm that is a similarity to being in television where there's so many other things around you, you know? I don't know. Well, I think it feels similar in that it can feel like you're on something that you're not really controlling and also where you're trusting... Um, I don't know, I mean, I'm sure there's technical terms for it, but where you're trusting, you are trusting the muscle memory, right? And I know there's, in this Alan Rusbridger book, actually, they talk about the different kinds of memory. Um, and so, you know, process memory and different kinds of memory. But so once you've practised something, you know, extensively, like the reason that I can remember the fingering for what we just heard is because I obviously practised it so much at the time that it's still somehow stuck in that part of my brain. Um, so I guess with television say if I'm on election night or if I'm in live interview with the Prime Minister or something, I am also relying on muscle memory. So I'm, I'm trusting instinct around things like um, that I know when to interrupt, that I know when to change subject and move on and all of that kind of stuff. But the difference in TV is that it's a massive amount of teamwork. And mm. so if I'm really out on the high wire, like on federal election night, I'm trusting that there are other people who are part of the team. Whereas if you're playing an instrument as a soloist, it's all on you. And so, yeah, you have to... It's similar that you can't overthink it. The parallel, I guess, is, say if I was interviewing the Prime Minister and I thought, should I interrupt? Should I interrupt? If, if you think that, it's over. You, you've right. missed the moment to interrupt. And it's in the same way where you go, like, here comes that tricky bit. Oh, God, is it is it three or is it four? Is it three or is it four? As soon as you've thought that, it's over. You've got to just be like, I'm, just in, I'm using through. force. It's, it's just all the force now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> When is a good time to interrupt when, when you're doing an interview? Is there, is, there, is, is there a specific moment that makes complete sense? When you've done it a long time, there is, but it's kind of gut, um, you know, instinct. It'd be exactly the same as, you know, knowing, say, if you're looking at a piece of piano music, oh, I'm going to tuck my finger under there. It's completely instinctive after a while because you've done it many, many times. And it varies. There's not like a locked-in rule mm. as to when there's a good time to interrupt. It would vary in every kind of situation. Mm. You mentioned the election night before. Why did you bring that one up? What happened that night? Oh, just because election night is the hardest because it's, um, it's, an, it's a large unknown. And so you start and you have... They have the rundown. It's a kind of circular rundown. And so you know that, um, OK, we're going to open while we're waiting for results to come through, I'm going to talk to the panel, I'm going to talk to Anthony, I'm going to cross to David Spears, and then we're going to do a cross out to whoever's with Morrison and whoever's with Albo. And then after that, the rundown is a big empty blank. And so it's, it's a really sounds sickening. absolutely terrifying. It's sickening. It's, yeah. a, it's absolutely sickening. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I like 
you know, playing music off a piece of music. I like baking off a recipe. So, <laughs> you know, that is not my idea of a good time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Imagine you're doing a concert and all of a sudden there's just the music's just gone. Yeah. You have to make They've it got, up. You've got like one page and then yeah. after that it's just like 28 blank pages. Oh, yeah, my it's God. not good. Do you, I mean, I know you've recently left 7.30, but do you miss that part of it? No. <laughs> people, do you know what? People keep asking me this. And somebody said to me the other day when the Queen died, um, oh, come on, be honest. You must have wished for a minute that you were in there. And honest to God, I swear that the only emotion I felt when I saw the Queen died, other than that it was sad and it reminded me of my grandmother and stuff, was thank God my day just did not get destroyed <laughs> and I'm, that I don't have to like, you know, suffer the anxiety of knowing, oh, now I'm going to be the face of the broadcast for when the Queen dies and what if we mess it up and then every, my Wikipedia starts with she was the face of the fucked up broadcast when the Queen died. Like, you know, like all of that hideous, you know, stuff. Yeah, so no, Fenella, I don't I miss don't, it. You don't miss it. Good to know. Happy to hear that. Takata and Fugue in D minor, I'm just going to get that right. If you were standing in front of an organ or sitting in front of an organ right now and you didn't have the sheet music, could you play it, any part of it? How'd you go? Oh, I could play the opening, definitely. Yeah. Can you do it now? Like... <laughs> That's a round of applause, guys. Come on. <laughs> There's a lot yeah. of hand movements going on there. And back and um, forth. Yeah, um, but if if an actual keyboard was there, I I mean I don't I don't know. I mean I, I'd probably be able to get it if I horsed around for a while. Yeah, this is fun. I like this. It's fun for me. I said to Fenella, um, one of the reasons I agreed to do it, other than that, um, Richard Tonietti and um, Satu and some other colleagues just came and did something with uh, Annabelle Crabbe and I mm. for a show we did. Um, and so I, I wanted to pay them back for that. And also um, the ACO invites me to so many cool and amazing things. And, and, and so I love them. <laughs> and also Fenella Suter was... Uh, Fen <laughs> sorry, Fenella Kernerbone, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Fenella Kernerbone was hosting. Um, I, every, what people want to talk to me about is politics and media and tax reform. <laughs> and what I want to talk about is music. So, you know, yeah. Yeah, it's good. Um, we're going to talk about the cello in a, in a moment because I know you're playing the cello right now. So we'll we'll hold we'll hold that one unless unless you want to bring no, up the, save the, it for last. Yeah, we'll yeah. save the save the string issue. Um, <laughs> and I, I'd like us to play our, our next track. Um, and maybe we can play the song and have a listen to it. And anybody in the room, if you know what it's called, feel free to shout it out. Okay, <laughs> I'm not sure you've ever heard of it before. <laughs> so let's hear Lee's track number three. I can, I can see your teenage Lee in Brisbane on the organ at a wedding. Yeah, well, this was... Um, so I had a part-time job uh, that came about because one of my best friend's sisters was getting married and they asked would I play and sing the piano while that... Sorry, sing and play the piano while um, they were signing the register. And so it was at a very kind of popular church in Brisbane and... When it was over, the woman who'd played the organ came up to me and said, oh, look, 
People are always asking for someone to sing while they sign the register. Could I put you in our books as our person because we don't have somebody? So I said, yeah, sure. And then we got chatting and I said I also played the organ. And she was like, oh, well, great, because if I'm not here, then do you reckon you could do that? So I said, sure. And so this was a great part-time job because a wedding would pay 60 bucks just to play, you know, the bridal march and the wedding march at the end. And then... Um, 60 bucks again if I actually sang and played while they signed the register. So if you did all of it, it was 120 bucks. And so, and this was, so that's like an hour's work. And my mates at Macca's were making like $8 an hour. So it was a fantastic <laughs> gig. Um, and because it was a popular church, sometimes you might have two or three weddings in the afternoon. So Which means was, two or three songs, yeah, this, the yeah. Yezu Joy of, what's it called again? Um, uh, Yezu uh, Joy of Men's Desiring. Yes, um, and so that was like quite a well-liked song. Some people would choose to walk down the aisle to that, you know, instead of um, the traditional Here Comes the Bride. And then, um, but, but I'm kind of triggered now by the song Wind Beneath My Wings, which was what many people in that era wanted when they signed the register, which is the most massively inappropriate choice, right? Because the, I mean, the opening line is, it must have been cold there in my shadow. <laughs> like, it's not the most ideal wedding song. So um, did you sing that or was it on I the did, organ? I did, yeah. You were, you were the Bette Midler. Of I was, yeah. I was Brisbane's <laughs> Bette Midler. <laughs> Including with the red hair and the large nose. Yes, the delightful Bette Midler. So how many, do you, can you think about how many weddings you did? Do you have any oh, Do you know like, what's hilarious is that I'm surprised that it hasn't happened yet is that there must be people with wedding videos where I'm singing while they... <laughs> I'm amazed that no one's put anything on YouTube. That It must exist. Um, so, I don't know. I mean, 50? I, I, I don't That's know. That's a lot of weddings. Like, yeah. I, I was thinking, oh, I'm doing this. I remember doing a few weddings and singing at a few, singing at a few weddings in my youth. But 50 weddings? Yeah. That's I, a I lot. I mean, I'm just trying to think... I wasn't doing it for that long because then I was doing it when I was at university and my university degree was three years long and then I started in journalism and then I didn't, didn't do that job anymore. So I can't have done that many, but mm. um, yeah, maybe, maybe 50. At, at what point did you say to yourself, music, I love music, this, is, this could be a career, but I'm, I'm going to choose something else? Well, um, Leanne was really influential in that, in that I did really love music and I remembered, particularly like at school, I was always the lead in school musicals and stuff and so I felt like, oh, this would be great, you know, maybe I could be an actor and um, musical theatre star, blah, blah, blah. But um, Leanne said to me, look, you know, you can try to do that if you want, but so many talented, there are so many talented people out there um, who are amazing at music and you know, it's a very, very hard thing to make a living out of. So you may or you may not be able to do that. But if you choose another route as your profession, then you'll always absolutely love music as your side thing that will be like your break from your actual job. And so I, I just... I took that on board and because I didn't want to, I just, she said, you know, because no matter how much you enjoy your job, your job's your job and so it's a slog. Mm. And so when you're finding that you, well, you have to practice for six hours a day or whatever, then it's kind of different to when you just want to practice for six hours, six hours a day. So that was very influential in my thinking and I certainly don't um, regret that. And in fact, I don't think I would have had the skill to be a professional um, musician. So yeah, that was, that was pretty influential. And I also did love writing and so 
you know, it wasn't like I really wanted to be a musician and I went a different path. I actually was like, oh, I'm not sure about this. I could do that, but no, I think I'll just keep it there. But, but the discipline of practising music, the discipline of, of, of listening to music, of writing, they're all, they all sort of occupy kind of similar places, even though you've been working as a journalist for so long. There's still that, to be able to kind of focus, and I know the cello, for example, you practice an hour a day is, is super amazing. But to be able to put yourself into that place where you go, I will focus completely on this for a period of time. Why is that so, I mean, I suppose, like, why is that so something that you're able, you're able to do and to not um, be distracted? Well, I think I'm able to do it because I did it as a child. And, and this is a thing, you know, I just think there's many benefits of a musical education, but one of them is um, that I have a very acute understanding that if you practice something that you will improve at it so although I do sometimes wonder with the cello like I think wow am I going to be the first person ever that practices an hour a day and they just remain absolutely terrible at the cello <laughs> <laughs> who, who never can like because when I, when I start before I even play a scale in front of my teacher I'll go just hang on a minute and I'll sort of play the open string and then I'll go Mm, find exactly, and I'm like, okay, I'm good to go now. And I'll sort of go. Um, that was like me with the trombone. You know, that, you know the sound of a, of a young teenager with a trombone. How horrendous is! There it is. <laughs> Sorry. Exactly. At least with the piano, when you play C, it comes out sounding like C. You know, most so most of the time. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think just the understanding, firstly, that you know, practice is is useful. And, and just because you've done it as a kid, you just have exercised that discipline muscle of doing it. Um, and then also, I actually, and I just, I don't know what this says about me, but I actually like practice. Like, I like playing scales. I like doing exercises. It, to me, it feels like a form of meditation. Mm. So I like the repetitive sound of it over and over again. Um, I like that it requires enough concentration that you can't be absorbed in your daily worries so but it's not it's a different part of my brain than what I'm exercising in my day job so even though it's like an intense I guess intellectual activity it's just somehow it's in a different part of the brain so I find it like a form of meditation and it gets you out of your day you know from interviewing the prime minister yeah to going I can focus on something else and yeah and just return. like slows you down yeah um you know like you say, like cooking is similar. Um, cool. I, th I think cooking, strangely enough, exercises exactly the same part of my brain because yep. it's um, reading instructions from a piece of paper. Yeah. It's rhythmic. Um, it's process driven, and there's different kind of you know processes that are involved. Um, and then at the end, when you've done all of those processes, and there's you know there can't be shortcuts. You kind of have to follow it. Um, then there's a really nice product that's produced at the end of it. And so to me, and also it requires a degree of concentration. I can't be stressing about work because I've got to be thinking, okay, cream, butter and sugar, add eggs or whatever the instruction is. And so it feels like it's in a similar part of the brain. I, I don't actually know if it is. I'd mm. love to know from a neuro person. I'm sure someone's done studies I bet, on this. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Well, this memory guy in Alan Rushbridge's book understood, you know, which parts of the brain are activated by certain activities. So I bet he would know if it was. There's a great book about mu music and creativity or your, your brain on music, I think. I read that recently. Anyway, uh, that's, that's, that's great. Although, you know, like I, I read the recipe, I've got to admit to you, and it never comes out, and I think I'm doing it precisely the same. <laughs> so it never really comes out as it should. But would you say that you're a fantastic cook then? Is there... Uh, no, I mean, it's like, no, it's like... But I make great music. I'm not it's so like sure about music, the cake. No, it's like music that some days, I mean, one of the 
strange things actually being back learning an instrument is um, that some days I sit down and I just go, what is this fresh hell of unleashed? <laughs> I could play this stuff yesterday, now I can't. And then the next day it's like, oh, that sounds really good. You, you grew up, can you imagine that? Um, you went from playing the piano, doing the organ at school, and you, you're all grown now. You went to university, and then you get your first big gig on national TV as an arts reporter. And I understand this, because I did a bit of that for a few years myself, um, in, in 1996. How, how significant was that for you to suddenly, to, to be in that role? Well, it was great. Well, on, it was great on many levels. One was that my fiance at the time had got a job in Sydney, and the job was in Sydney, and I needed a job in Sydney, and so that was great. Um, so that's the only reason you took so it. So that was yeah. So that was it, it was handy, helpful. It, yeah, yeah, had then to, it was yeah. also like oh, all this music that was my kind of all this stuff was my kind of side thing. Um, oh, now I can actually use it in my day job, and it was a big kind of national round for the ABC. So it was you know tick tick tick. Um, and then the beauty of that job was. I mean, it was truly amazing, as you can imagine, to be a kid from Brisbane and get plonked at, I was 23 at the time, into Sydney, and then you're suddenly going to everything. Yeah. Um, and so you're seeing all of this amazing stuff all the time. And so because I felt as the arts reporter, I had to see as much as possible to know what was going on. I went to just all sorts of things that would be not necessarily my taste, but I would go to just to see it. And I think that was really excellent because you're exposed to things that, you wouldn't choose to go to and then you discover, oh, I actually love that. Mm. Or you just learn, oh, well, that's just not for me. I just don't particularly love that kind of thing. So, Or I can appreciate the skill in that, but I don't love it. Like, for example, and I don't know why this is so, but I don't really like opera very much. And I, Get out. Sorry. Which, is, <laughs> which is so weird because I love, I adore classical music. I like theatre. I, what I what really is it? Is it the, is it the singing? Is it the libretto? Well, I hesitate to say this because you told me at the back that you're classically trained, but I think I don't like the sound of the human voice. I don't, oh. think, I don't think I like the sound of the... Not unless I'm singing Wind, I... by with, wind, <laughs> wind Beneath My Wings, I don't, sorry. I don't adore the sound of the classically trained human voice. I'm so sorry, Fenella, I just don't. It's just not my bag. I just don't. There's other... It's the same with, like... Uh, the violin's not my favourite instrument either. I, like, I can appreciate beautifully played violin, but... But if you pick just... up your cello and hold it this way... Thank God. It's, <laughs> Thank it's God Tom Yeti's on tour. Imagine if he was here. I just don't love the sound of the violin. Um, but I do, I like... I mean, I just... I think I prefer deeper, more resonant sounds. Like, I like the sound of the cello. I like the sound of the double bass. I like the sound of the bassoon. I like the sound of the oboe. Like, it's just certain... I prefer the bass guitar. Like, I just... There's certain yep. sounds that I just like more. It's the timbre, you know. It's, yeah. it's, the, it's the way, it vib the vibration. Yeah, <laughs> it's just something that kind of hits. And so I've always been kind of puzzled that I don't love opera. But I've mm. seen a lot of good opera, so I know that... And that's fine, you know, like... But, you know, because I, I did arts reporting too, but I remember when I was same age as you, uh, I did... I was, like, 21, 22, and I, I remember going and seeing Diamonde Galas, who's an opera singer who's, like... It's, it's, like, amazing but terrifying vocals. And I, it's the sort of thing I would have hated too, but I absolutely loved it because it was yep. so freaky. Oh, mm. totally. You can see things like that um, and think, oh, I didn't think I'd love that, but actually did. Like, I remember in that era, I would go to see the Sydney Dance Company and... Mm. Dance is one thing, you know, art form that I've never really, like I didn't do ballet, didn't do any of that stuff. And um, I'd go and see it and I just thought, oh my God, what they're doing here is amazing. Graham Murphy, who was the artistic director at the time, I thought yeah. was just an incredible kind of ambassador for contemporary dance. And uh, 
that was, and you know, and again, in terms of a gateway, like, you know, funny actually that we're talking about this because, um, so I remember they did this, um, actually it might have been the Australian Ballet that did it, or was it Graham? I can't remember. Anyway, it was, the Australian Ballet has done it since. It's called In the Upper Room. It's a um, Philip Glass piece of music with choreography mm. by Twyla Tharp, and it's Fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Anyway, I loved the piece of music and I wasn't particularly familiar with Philip Glass. I don't love all Philip Glass, but I do particularly like that piece of music. Anyway, I was playing it this morning, part of it, one of the parts on the piano, because I snapped the A string on my cello. And so now, because I'm back in the vibe of practising every day, if I have a day where I can't practise, I'm all, like, on edge. And so I thought, oh, what am I going to do? wrecked the cello um so I thought I'd better do some piano practice and I pulled out that piece of music now I would not know that piece of music had I not gone to see the Sydney Dance Company in 1997 or whatever and you still remember it that's amazing oh I had the sheet music all right yeah yeah. Yeah. well that's useful I thought you were like a polymath you're a genius how did did you do it um so you were the arts reporter and then after that you go to the states let's hear another piece of music um this is you introduce it for me um it's Manuel Axe and he's playing a bit of Chopin He's extraordinary. Oh, yeah. just, and the beauty about living in the US was um, just everybody toured. You could mm. see every good person in the world in everything, like not just, you know, in sport. I went to see Michael Jordan play. He was playing with the Washington Wizards. Like everyone came when you, through. When you see you got there in like 2001, just after 9-11. Late 2001, just right? after 9-11, mm. and we left at the end of 2005. Um, and... Uh, it was amazing. And so I went to see, um, you know, all the great kind of orchestras. And so I went to Chicago to see the Chicago Symphony and Emmanuel wow. Wax was playing. He was playing Brahms Piano Concerto Number no. 1, which is probably my favourite piece of classical music, among, although it's kind of hard to make an, a definitive call like that. But um, I'm just going to write that down. <laughs> favourite piece. But um, he came, I mean, he just played beautifully and Mm. then he came out to do the encore and he played a piece of music that I didn't recognize actually but I think it would it was either Chopin or it was a I'm pretty sure it was Chopin it could have been Liszt it was Mm. something in that terrain and um it was just the best thing I've ever heard it Mm. was just like moves me to tears now just the memory of whatever it was that I can't even remember like it was (laughs) Because it's about so the, beautiful. It's the feeling. Oh, the feeling. All I've got left is the feeling of yeah. how that that made me feel when he came out and played it. It was beyond. Mm. And so that was just so amazing to like have moments like that. And 
you know, it's funny, like, just even just hearing that through the speaker, like, I felt mm. like my blood pressure went down by about half, right? It's true. I, like, it's... and it was incredible when we were rehearsing and we played the pieces of music, that piece of music came on and we both were, like, stopped in our tracks and just mm. kind of stopped talking. Um, and it's the combo, of course, of his brilliant playing and an amazing piece of music. Mm. Um, and so, like, I remember going to New York and seeing, um, it, and it would have been as many people as this, right? Small. Yo-Yo Ma in conversation with Alex Ross, who's the music critic for The New Yorker, and they just spoke for like 45 minutes dissecting Bach's cello concerto, cello suite, sorry, and then um, Yo-Yo Ma played... <laughs> and, uh, and then everyone and just, just left for the day. It was just insane. And if that was here, it would be a massive... If it was here, it would be thing. just, you know, the streets would be shut for the traffic jams. Yeah. <laughs> right? But it was just some small venue in New York. Everyone's like, oh, well, Yo-Yo's here every week. Yeah. So it was just... That kind of stuff just blew my mind living there. It was so great. Mm. I was actually, I was thinking about Emmanuel Axe and actually watched an interview with him in lockdown, how he, he was the last artist to play with Yo-Yo Ma um, in March 2020, and that was the last performance at Carnegie Hall. And then he, he went away and, you know, obviously sat, sat in his, wherever he lived for two years, not doing anything. But the thing that he said, which I thought was interesting because you've chosen two Bach tracks, is, is what he said is, he felt that he's played very little Bach in his life and it's one of his greatest failings that he's never... Emmanuel Axe? Yeah. Oh, that wow. he's never learnt it, that he feels guilt and a real lack of ability about not playing enough Bach. Oh. Isn't that interesting? Wow. I'm amazed that you get to that level because most musicians I know seem to, like I reckon a steady proportion of them would say Bach's their favourite. So um, that's very interesting. But the whole thing, I think the point being is that no matter how great you are at your craft and you're, you know, for example, a brilliant interviewer, that you, you, there's always something to learn. There's always more to, to, oh, to, to skill up on, basically. Yeah, definitely. And, and it's it, because it, every human being's different and things change on the day, you know, I assume with those guys, even when they're playing a piece of music, like it's different kind of every time they play it. I heard this amazing podcast with Yo-Yo Ma where he was talking about um, the prelude to the Bach cello suites and he was saying um, he's been playing that piece since he was about five and then he said they played a recording of him butted together one when he was 21 and one like recent one and even for me I could actually hear the difference in the playing and he was saying he found it hard to listen to the one when he was 21 because it sounded so substandard to him <laughs> and it was to do with the level of emotion that he said that he felt he was able to imbue the music with um anyone anyone else and even if you hadn't heard the you know 55 year old version anyone else hearing the 21 would go well that's it's pretty brilliant. good yeah. yeah um but Imagine yeah, if so people did that for, for you like they put your interview with so-and-so prime minister <laughs> when you're 23 and then they put it up against the one where you were at 7.30. Oh, no comparison. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so what, right. what would that feel like? I listened to um, Joshua Bell playing The Four Seasons recently, the violinist, um, and it, it is kind of amazing when you listen to these really amazing elite musicians mm. where you don't even necessarily have the language or you, you're not literate in that their instrument. And... And, you know, even though Four Seasons is such a famous piece of music, I did feel like, I, I, it did feel like, oh, I'm listening to a different level of playing of that piece of music, even though every other recording or interpretation of it I've heard is mm. probably very good. But it just felt like, wow, that feels different. Or even, um, I don't know if anyone here, because you're all probably ACO lovers, did anyone go to um, um, James Crabb playing piano accordion this year? Oh. That's one of my favourite things I've seen um, in memory because um, so 
he was playing um, mostly Astor Piazzolla mm. um, pieces, so it's South American tango-y kind of vibe. And uh, I can't, because I don't have the language, I can't explain it other than to just say I just felt like James Crabb is such a musician. That was, uh, that I just kept thinking, he's so, he's so musical. I can't come <laughs> up with it. But it was like, it was something about the way that he played where he was so... Um, in the music and so it's possibly also because the nature of the instrument feels like it's breathing right mm, mm. so it feels like it's alive but his and Richard's interaction made it feel like more than the sum of its parts and then everyone it felt like everyone else on the stage was having a great time too and so you could listen to the best recording of Astor Piazzolla's music in the world and it will not replicate that because it was just super special. So I just left and was like, oh, God, James Crabb, I just love him. <laughs> All right. I have, to, I have to have a listen to it. I've oh, got to go check it out. Great. Um, so we've gone from, we've done two Bach tracks. We've done Emmanuel Axe playing Chopin. We started off with Stevie Wonder, and um, we're going to play something else now that you've described this particular band as um, the soundtrack to your life, oh. possibly to a few of our lives, I must admit. <laughs> so, so tell us what we're about to listen to. Okay, we're going to be listening to a bit of the medley from the B-side of Abbey Road by the Beatles. <laughs> Sounds good. Sing along if you can. Out of college, money spent, see no future, no So uh, it'll, it'll it, look. Anyone who's a Beatles fan would know where that's all going to keep going. It's going to just move into "You Never Give Me Your Money" and "Oh Yeah, All Right." Oh, you gonna be in my dreams tonight? It's just so great. It's so great. Um, so you're a dead set Beatles fan. Oh, massively, yeah. and just so many relationships I've had have been. With people, there's this Beatles kind of connection there, um, and so one of the beauties of hosting 7:30 was that I would get to interview people about music and people that I loved. So you know, Elton John and Neil Finn and Patti Smith and just you know so many amazing um, artists. And so Paul McCartney toured in 2017, and the opportunity came up to interview him, and I was actually scared because I just felt like. The Beatles mean so much to me. Like, I'd seen McCartney in the US, because, of course, he toured, like everybody. And, uh, like, I cried on the way to the show, because I just couldn't believe I was going to be seeing Paul McCartney. I was so <laughs> thrilled. Um, and I was just so happy um, to, to actually see him. And the McCartney in concert, actually, in, in some... It's just different. But because he now, of course, he tours with the best musicians in the world. So the songs sound incredible like mm. like kind of objectively they do sound better than how they sound on the album but of course you know you have nostalgia for the album so I, I wouldn't say it's better it's just different but it is definitely there's a higher level of musical mm. expertise um so I was scared to meet McCartney because I just thought well what if he's an asshole and then what if every time I hear Abbey Road or whatever I, I all it's I think tainted. of instead of just going what a great song I think 
oh, what about that time that McCartney was yeah. turned out to be horrible? And uh, anyway, but so my producer it's, talked me it's into a real, it. It's a real fear. It is, <laughs> yeah. So my producer said, how could you not? So we went, it was in Perth. And so I rang, um, actually a friend I saw yesterday dropped me to the airport in Brisbane, Tim. Um, Tim had introduced me when we were in high school to Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band because it was his favourite album. And so then it was my favourite album. And so I rang Tim, who's now a high school teacher in Brisbane, and said, look, this is going to sound like the craziest offer ever, but do you want to, in two weeks' time, come with me to Perth for the weekend and we're going to meet Paul McCartney and go to the rehearsal on the Friday night and then we're going to wow. go to the concert on Saturday night. And he was just like... Yes, <laughs> I do want to do that. Um, and so he met me there and so we did. And it was one of those life events where, you know, sometimes you have days or weeks or, you know, years or lifetimes where just everything's going wrong all the time. It was one of those weekends where everything just kept going right and it just got better and better and better and better. <laughs> and so when McCart McCartney's people were all lovely, when we got there and he, he kind of arrived on time, which is amazing too for people at that level, um, Tim and I just standing in the wings and they were, they just fired up and started playing Day Tripper. And um, Tim just looked at me and went, we're watching actual Paul McCartney play actual Day Tripper. <laughs> so we were just losing our like minds with excitement. And before McCartney had arrived, they'd, his, one of his roadies had given us a tour around of all the instruments and they had all these guitars that had been played on amazing things and... I got to have a go on the piano that had been used on the actual Magical Mystery Tour and it was just, it was mind-blowing. <laughs> and then McCartney arrived and he was absolutely lovely and he did that thing that I think sometimes very, very, very famous people that people have a lot of emotional investment in can do very well if they're gracious, lovely people, which is they try to not destroy that person's special moment. Because even though a million people have started crying when they've met Paul McCartney, it's their one time, you know, right? And yeah. So he was just so lovely to absolutely everyone. Wow. And so you kind of left and you felt like, well, now, now when I hear Abbey Road, instead of thinking, being crushed, I just feel like so, so happy. The about, joy. Oh, <laughs> it was just so great. So... Because I, I watched the promo with 7.30 and I see him hugging you in oh, that promo. And I go, that's really... I'm like, oh, my God, that's really exciting. I, look, I still have that promo on my phone and sometimes if I'm having a bad day, I watch it. <laughs> <laughs> because it just... It fills me with so much joy to see it. It's just... Yeah, he was... That was at the end and um, mm. I just said to him... Actually, the, I think there was a moment, and this sometimes happens in interviews, where you ask a question and it kind of unlocks it a bit and it's because the person... Very famous people are hard to interview because they have been asked everything a yep. squillion times. And so if you can ask something that actually piques their interest, then you kind of that helps a lot. And I asked this question about, um, like a lot of us have, you know, anxiety dreams um, about our jobs or whatever. Do you ever have any anxiety dreams? And he went, you know what, I actually do. And it's that I'm playing... And I'm in front of a really big crowd and I'm playing a song and it's a new song and everyone starts getting really restless and leaves. And so I say to the band, boys, quick, hey, Jude. <laughs> 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 and so, so we were kind of laughing about that. And then um, I said to him at the end, um, look, I've had a very lucky life and I've got to interview all sorts of amazing people from the Dalai Lama to Hillary Clinton and... Elton John and everyone, but I've never interviewed someone that I'm as big a fan of as you and you've been so beautiful, thank you so much. And he was like, oh, give us a hug, love. <laughs>
Was that? Do you think that's the highlight of, of seven thirty? Do you think? Or yep. Yeah. 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 I no doing no doing with Jimmy Barnes. No doing Scott no. Morrison was way better. Okay. <laughs> Oh, playing piano with Jimmy Barnes, I mean, that was also a, an amazing moment and that was unplanned, thank God, actually, because I would have been dying of anxiety. So we went to interview Jimmy Barnes and uh, he's, he had a big grand piano in his kind of this big warehouse that he was living in and um, uh, I forget what happened. We did the interview and then Jane, his wife, came down and she'd been doing the videos with Jimmy and she said... Um, you've got to do a song with Jimmy. He knew that I played the piano or something. And, and um, I said, oh, no, like, just no way am I going to play with Jimmy Barnes. And so I said, no. And Jane went, you have to. And I was like, no. And Jimmy said, oh, come on, come on. And uh, so I was just thinking, well, just no. And so, I, and so I said, well, you know, we haven't practiced anything. So, and he said, well, you know, what do you want to play? And I was like, oh, I don't know, a Beatles song. And he went, yeah, okay. And I said, well, which one? And he went, anyone. And I said, well, but what key? And he went, any key. And so then I'm like, oh, God, well, th how, there's no way to get out of it. So I <laughs> sat down and played um, the opening chords for something, which then Jimmy sang and I just played along. And um, I was just really fun and, and great. <laughs> but had you said to me the day before, um, we're going to be filming a shot, a bit of you playing piano and Jimmy's going to sing. I would have had an absolute nervous breakdown from terror and would have been like trying to carve out practice time and, oh, what are we going to do? And so it actually was great that it was just a like, all right, well, I'm just going to sit down and play a few chords and we're just going to see what comes out. Mm. Back to that muscle memory we talked about before. Yeah, thank God. Mm. I played something eight million times, so it kind of came out. <laughs> but there is a bit where it goes into this kind of modulates into a um, – it's in – or I was playing it in C, I think it's in C, but, um, and then it hits the kind of da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and it's, um, it's A on a C sharp in the bass. And as I was doing the like, run-up, I was like, I think it's A on a C sharp in the bass, <laughs> but I'm not going to know until I crash right onto it. Anyway, thank God it was. And it's, you could actually see in the thing, I heave an audible sigh of like, oh, thank God, that was, yeah. she like going for dissonance. Yeah. Um, I know we've talked a bit about playing the cello already, um, but we've got one final song and it, it's exquisite. So um, do you want to introduce it for us? It's uh, Umberto Clerici, who until recently was principal cello at Sydney Symphony, and he's just um, now chief conductor at the Queensland Symphony, and he's playing a piece called Alone by Solima. <laughs> So uh, it's funny with cello because so I did a year of violin when I was in high school and I was in the strings orchestra and um, when we were living in Melbourne for one year and uh, but I had massive cello envy 
Um, and I remember this girl's name, actually, Frances. We went on like a band camp. And I just wanted, I had such cello The, the pan packs, sorry. <laughs> Keep going. And she um, let me have a turn of her cello. And then I didn't persist with violin. And then I'd kind of always had this love of cello. So when I got my first job, which was at Channel 9 in Brisbane, I thought, okay, I've got some money. I'm buying a cello. I'm going to start cello lessons. So I did. But because I was at the start of my career, and so often when you're junior, you're working very long hours and you're you know, just mm. working really hard to try to get a foot in. I just didn't practice. I couldn't. And, and you know, strings instruments, it's... It's humiliating. If you can already play one instrument reasonably well, proficiently, it's kind of humiliating to go from scratch on another one because you're acutely aware of how bad you sound. It's not like like my eight-year-old who's also learning cello this morning said, Mum, come and listen to me play something. And of course, you know, between us, it was terrible. (laughs) (laughs) But he was very proud of it. And actually, you know, it was like he's getting there. Um, But... It's frankly wasn't that much worse than me, and so <laughs> so he's proud of it. I'm like just mortified if anyone. I lock myself in the room and shut all the windows and I just pray that no one can hear my practice. Mm. Um, so it's hard, and so I got rapidly discouraged because I felt like this is too hard. I can't do it. The music's so basic. I could sight read that standing on my head on the piano. I can't make a decent noise come out of it. Never practiced, so got rid of it. And then moved to Sydney, and then I remember actually going to see the ACO, and Peter Wispelway was playing the cello, and um, I, I remember when I left, I was gutted, I was at rock bottom, and I just felt like um, he just played so beautifully, mm. and I, I just had this moment of thinking, it was this kind of, I don't know, thing you do sometimes in life, where I felt like the life choices I've made mean I will never play the cello like that. Um, even if I'd started learning today and I dedicated myself to it, I've, that's over. And there's certain things in life where I'll have that thought, like if I see someone doing great ballet or whatever, I'll think, well, you know, I never, I'm going to die and I never will have done a pirouette or I never will have, you know, stood on my t- point toes or whatever. And so I think, but that doesn't make me that sad because I don't really want to do, I think, well, that would be a lovely thing to do, but I don't really want to do that that much. Mm. But I, I really would have you loved be to play the cello. cello. And so... It really, I was, I, I, it's hard to explain but, and why. It seems a bit weird now, many years later, but I just was utterly crushed and really depressed. And then I somehow, over time, came around to feeling like, I know that I'll never do that, but I'm just so happy that somebody else can do that. Mm. So by the time that I saw Emmanuel Axe in Chicago, instead of feeling crushed like that I would never play piano like that, I was like, well, thank God someone on the planet can play piano like that <laughs> so I can sit here and, and listen and to them it. and I don't have to do the work, you know, involved mm. in that. And so now, um, so how it came about that I'm actually learning cello was um, I was having dinner with some people and I met Catherine Hugel, who's the principal cello at the Sydney Symphony. And we got talking about this story about me always having cello envy. And she said, I'll I'll teach you. And I was like, as if you want to teach me. Like, there's no way. Why would you be doing that? She's doing master classes for geniuses. And so the next day I rang our friend um, who was with us, Louise Heron, actually, the Opera House CEO, and said, "Um, was that just too many champagnes, Catherine, talking about teaching me cello? What what do you think? And she said, let me just ask her on the quiet and I'll find out. And so Louise came back and said, Katie says, you know, she would. And so then I rang her and I I left it actually sit for a few weeks because I just thought, well, 
I just need to, I don't want to waste anyone's time here and I just want to make sure that I'm not suffering from like, oh, I've just gone on long service leave and so now I'm going to take up some crazy hobby that I actually don't have time for. So I just let it brew and then I got to a point where I thought, if Katie Hugel actually was prepared to teach me cello, that feels like the greatest gift from the universe ever. So why would I not accept that? So then I rang her and said, look, I just don't understand why you would even contemplate doing this. Um, why do you want to do it? And she said, look, just because I think it'll be fun. I think we'd get on well. Um, sometimes it's good for me to teach a beginner because it just kind of make, forces me back on first principles and it makes me appreciate you know, what I can do and blah, blah, blah. And so um, I said, okay, but if you change your mind at any time, just you know, you can pull the pin and let's just feel our way and see how it goes. And I won't be able to come every week, but you know, let's see what happens. And so I started having lessons with her and it's really fun. And the difference I think now for me, because I'm older and, and more sensible, is um, what I'm trying to do is enjoy the process of it, not be too harsh and judgy on myself about the quality of it mm. so when I play it and it sounds bad or the tone sounds dreadful or uh, pitchy it's it, it's excruciating to me because I can hear like even if it's slightly off but I try to not then just lose my rag over it so I just go well let's just try that bit again and you know let's just or, or sometimes I just go back to like if it's really terrible I go well let's just do some open bows that can't hurt <laughs> so I just go right strip it right back um and so I'm trying to just because obviously like anything with life it's all it's all process right yeah because I think say even interviewing Paul McCartney on 7 30 well there was 30 years of standing outside courts in the rain and getting sent on disasters and whatever crap I had to do to get to being able to do that, right? So you can't, if you don't like all of the process that leads up to that, well, it's no good. There's no point. Yeah. And yeah. so there's no point thinking, oh, well, I'm learning cello so I can play alone like yeah, Umberto because I'm yeah. never going to do it. So you have to enjoy the actual process. And so I'm trying really hard to do that. And I am actually, I'm mm. really enjoying it. But doing hard things you know, as we get older in particular, it's so good for our brains. It's so good for, it's just, it's incredibly important. Yeah. And I mean, I don't mean to sound um, arrogant when I say this, but what it's also made me realise, I was talking to my friend um, Richard Flanagan, the writer about this, and um, I was saying most of the time, I think when you're at our age, you're spending most of your time um, working in, you know, whatever's your profession. Mm. And and often you've been doing it for a long time. So when I'm preparing for, say, an interview with McCartney or PM or election night or whatever, usually I'm operating at a level where I'm going, I'm never worried about can I execute it? The question is, will this be good? Will it be excellent? Will it be brilliant? And so what am I doing in the work? Or And then there's a lot of luck obviously involved in which of those things it's going to be. But at, at the very basic, it's going to be definitely good. Mm. And so... but. Now that I'm learning a new skill, um, I'm not operating anywhere near that realm. I'm operating at, can I execute this? Um, and a fair whack of the time, I can't execute it. And so it's very humbling. And it's also now, it's exercising a different kind of part of my brain. And Richard was talking about being in France and trying to learn French. And he was saying, and obviously Richard's, you know, book a prize winner. So he's um, operating at an elite, elite level of writing. So he was saying, isn't it incredible when you're doing an activity where the, the very best that you can aim for is basic competence? <laughs> <laughs> and so we were laughing. 
about <laughs> basic competence. And I was like, man, if I can play the cello with basic competence, I will be absolutely, absolutely thrilled. Stoked. Yeah. Can We're I? saying too with language, you know, how it changes your personality because if you... He was saying, for example, he can't use any humour whatsoever. So you're like, right, well, you're per different personality now. I love it. I feel like I, you should invite us all around to a dinner party because there's like the cello player, you've got Richard Flanagan. <laughs> Who else is going to be there? It's going to be I've great. I've dropped way too many names. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> no, I think it's really great. Um, I know we're going to wrap up in a minute, um, but I was just going to say the opportunity to do... You've, you've, you've been doing your podcast with Annabelle for eons now. I actually, I tried to count it. I was like, how many have you done? Because it's quite hard to find it. Then I realised you could actually just search first episode. Oh, yeah, right. Um, so it's November 2014, so you're almost right. 195 yeah, episodes. nearly a decade. Do you know that? Do you know that? Yeah, you do. I, I yeah. just... I did the other day think it was nearly a decade, but I didn't know how many episodes. Close to it. Wow. Yeah, but the, the freedom that it allows you, because you're so obviously analysing music, you think about music and, 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 and books and everything on that, the freedom just to, to have a conversation with your, with your mate and to talk about the things that, that are fun to you, what yeah. does that mean for you? Oh, well, it's great because I don't get to talk very much about um, culture. Like, I dare say most people in this room would have had no idea that I have such a love of music or that I play instruments or whatever because no one ever asked me about it. Um, so to be able to talk to Crab about that is great and because also she's like utterly unmusical and a total philistine. So you can tell her the most basic stuff. It's quite funny. You both give each other a lot of stick. It's pretty good. Yeah. You can tell her the most basic stuff and she'll be impressed by it. So, That's amazing. Um, but she also ribs me kind of yeah, mercilessly um, about things. Like I, I recently, we, we went to WA in the school holidays for two weeks and took our families and I took the cello because I didn't want to, because I'm through the like, you know, really excruciating starting bit, right? My fingers aren't sore. I can actually make a decent tone out of it. And so I don't, I didn't want to, and because as I said, I know that nothing sticks. I was just worried if I didn't play for two weeks, well, will I come back and I'll be back to like, can't make a decent tone out of it. So um, I took it and then <laughs> crap, we were driving down to Albany together, which is a five hour drive. And I broke the news to her that, well, the cello's in the car, so you have to sit in the back seat because it hasn't come in the front. <laughs> And again, the back was full of suitcase stuff. So it was cello in the front, crab in the back. And she was like, <laughs> she was like, all right. So, you know, I'm going to be crammed into the back seat, losing circulation to the lower half of my body. So your calluses don't soften up. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. Did you buy it so it's on the plane as well? No, I chucked Just it down it. the hold. And okay. you know the thing that, was, that I've realised, because I've taken it a few places, um, it's an excellent conversation starter because everyone's like, oh, wow, is that a cello? And, oh, do you play? And da, da, da. But there was this hilarious moment where when I was lining up, I was lining up to, um, you know, get a tag to put it in oversized baggage. And obviously the brilliant proper musicians, they, they're not chucking their cello down the hold. It's got its own seat on yeah. the plane. And so strangely enough, when I've got to the airport, the person right in front of me was a cellist. And I could tell straight away that he was a professional because he had a very hard, proper kind of case. Um, anyway, he started checking and I could see that he was checking his cello. And I don't know who it was. I didn't recognise him. It wasn't anyone with the ACO or the SSO. Because um, you've cased all the cellists and everything. Yeah, exactly. Right. I, know who, I, know who all of, I know who all of them are. I study all of them. Um, and, then, and then I could see he was kind of looking at me like, oh, this is unusual, another cellist behind me. But he could see, it was puzzling because what was happening was he could see immediately that I was just 
you know, I didn't have my cello in a proper, you know, elite kind of case, and I was just checking it, and I was going to put it down oversized bag. And then, but I could see he was kind of looking at me, and I, I realised he was either confounded by two things, one of two things. One was I was getting quite special treatment because the person at the desk recognised that I was Lee Sales. And so they were like, oh, Miss Sales, could we do this for you? Could we do that for you, right? <laughs> so he's kind of looking going, but she can't be a proper musician because she's chucking her shallow down the chute, <laughs> but she's getting treated like she's Yo-Yo Ma. So what is going on here? What's going on? And then, But then I thought later, maybe he did recognise it was me, but he was thinking, why the hell is she walking around with a cello? So, <laughs> so I don't know what happened. Anyway, I... Ch I the woman who was looking after me then said, um, oh, isn't that funny? The man next to you's got a cello as well. And I said, yeah, but he's a proper musician. And she went, oh, I'm sure you're a proper musician. <laughs> <laughs> um, I feel like I could talk to you for hours. It's been so amazing. Hasn't it been incredible? It's just amazing. Oh, thank thank you. you. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> I also tried to prepare because I had all these questions for you, but we've just had a chat. That's the perfect way I of being. I knew we'd do that. I knew it would happen. <laughs> I asked you what you listened to at the beginning. Um, when you go home tonight and you listen to something, what's it going to be tonight? Oh, by the time I get home tonight, what happens at the moment is my eight-year-old is insisting on sleeping in the bed with me, and so then it'll be like watching... Um, inside the mind of kittens on Netflix, so there will be okay. no so that's what you're until to. he falls to sleep. So I'll be listening to whatever the theme music of Inside the I Mind of it. Kittens is. <laughs> I've got a joke for you. No, I won't do that. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. On that note, thank you, Lee Sales, for thank joining you. us. What a delight having you here tonight. Thank you very much. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Um,